I Am The Law is brought to you by Blueprint LSAT Test Prep, which reports an average score increase of 15 points. With the first AI-powered QBank, fun videos, personalized study plans, and engaging 98th percentile instructors, Blueprint has helped thousands of students crush their LSAT goals. Learn more at BlueprintLSAT.com. From Law Hub, this is I Am The Law, a podcast where we talk with lawyers about their jobs to shed light on how they fit into the larger legal ecosystem. In this episode, Kimber Russell interviews a real estate lawyer who highlights the pluses and minuses of working for someone else instead of running your own firm. Support comes from Seton Hall University School of Law in Newark, New Jersey where you can enroll full-time or in the weekend JD program. In the heart of New Jersey, with proximity to New York City, Seton Hall is dedicated to your outcomes, evidenced by high employment and bar passage rates. Its one-student-at-a-time approach supports you throughout your time in law school. Their flexible, hybrid, weekend JD program allows working professionals to balance work, family, and law school. Learn more at law.shu.edu. Support also comes from the University of Idaho College of Law, and its two locations. The Moscow location has all the resources of the university's main campus, neighboring a picturesque, charming college town. The Boise location is in the heart of downtown, just blocks from the seat of government. Either Idaho Law location provides an abundance of outdoor opportunities. As the only law school in the state, Idaho Law provides near-exclusive access to the courts, the legislature, and the rapidly developing business and nonprofit community. We're joined today by Dan Drake, a 1995 graduate from Stetson College of Law in Florida, who works on both real estate litigation and transactions for a small firm on the Gulf Coast of Florida. But Dan, you actually went to law school thinking you'd be a criminal prosecutor. So what sparked your interest in that? Well, I was a uh, police officer for uh, 10 years in the uh, city of St. Petersburg, Florida. What sort of cases did you cover when you were a police officer? I worked uh, patrol for a couple of years. I was an undercover detective in vice and narcotics for several years. I then was in a field training officer where I trained new people fresh out of the academy. And then I went to what's called special operations, which is like undercover work, except you make no contact with someone that you're trying to make a, an arrest on. It's, it's more like surveillance. So I did that and was promoted to sergeant. When I was younger, you feel indestructible. Uh, you know, nothing can happen to you. And uh, chasing, chasing people down dark alleys in the middle of the night is, is, is fun. But as you, as you get older, you know, you kind of realize this, this is kind of dangerous. This is maybe something I don't want to do all my life. I don't want to be chasing someone down a, an alley at midnight when I'm, when I'm 40 years old. Coming out of law school, I had no interest in, let's say, being a criminal defense attorney. I believed that uh, <laughs> everyone I put in jail belonged to be there, and if I was going to be an attorney, I'd be, you know, carrying on the same the same thing that I was used to doing for ten years. That was my idea. What was the first kind of job that you had once you had transitioned into law? I would have liked to go to the state attorney's office and been a prosecutor. I think I would have enjoyed that. 
Unfortunately, at least in my neck of the woods, the starting pay for the um, state attorney's office and the uh, defense attorney's offices on the low side, whereas some of the uh, private law firms had bigger budgets to hire new people out of a law school. Um, so while I was looking at going to work for the state attorney's office, I heard actually through a friend of a job at a particular law office, and um, their starting pay was about $10,000 a year more than the state attorney's. I came out of school with substantial school loans to make it to make it through. So getting a job offer at ten thousand more than another one that I was looking at it was important. It did make a difference. Had I not had the school loans, um, I may have gone the state attorney's route and uh, tried my hand at prosecution. I think it would have, I might say, fit me and fit what I did for the last ten years, but. Monetarily, it was I had to had to take the one that offered the more money at the time. Let's fast forward to where we're at today. So you're at a firm that does a little bit of everything, although you focus on real estate. You're also not an associate or a partner, but something akin to of counsel. What does that mean for your own particular compensation? Well, I work at Leaser Scaff Alexander in Tampa. We actually do quite a bit of just about everything. You know, for example, I'm very much into real estate, both litigation, transactional. So it sounds like you have something of a of an interesting organizational structure at your firm. What what does that mean for your own particular compensation? Without going in too deep, um, compensation is based on essentially two things. Number one is, of course, how much money I can bring into the firm over a given year. We do, we do bill by the hour, like most firms do. Plus, I get credit for cases that I bring into the firm, even if someone else works them. I've been practicing law for 25 years and have made a lot of contacts with companies and people over the years, even at different law firms, and able to bring things in. So if a case comes in that makes the firm some money, even though another attorney has handled it and has billed for it and has earned most of it, I get some credit for that for bringing it in. So my compensation is my hourly contribution plus my rainmaking contribution. And there's a, there's a magic formula behind it that ends up to my my annual compensation. It sounds like your your rainmaking is pretty considerable. What is it about this particular structure at the firm that is preferable to going out on your own and taking full profits from your endeavors? Well, I worked on my own for a while, and there, there's a lot to be said for doing that. It can be very satisfying, and you're right. You get 100% of uh, of what you do, but you have to be a business person uh, in addition to a lawyer. And uh, I'll be the first one to admit I'm not the best business person in the world. I'm just I'm just not lawyering much better at to let someone else handle 
the bills and the banking and things like that, which can take can take a lot of time if you do that on your own, is, is actually quite a relief. I don't have to worry about insurance and, and how much and paying the rent and things like that. You know, I do my job and I get my paycheck every two weeks and um, it's kind of nice. Plus, I get exposure since we take uh, such a variety of cases. I can get some exposure to other areas of law that you might say I have some curiosity in, but not the expertise to handle. Um, I could go to an attorney that's handling something unusual. They said, hey, you know, tell me about your case and, and, and what's your strategy and what's, what's the defense on this and, you know, get the short version and learn something about it. I, I, I enjoy that. And I tell you, it can be, it can be kind of lonely being on your own as well to have some other attorneys you can talk to and bounce things off of is great. It really is to be able to walk down the hall and say, um, Hey, um, Hey Mike, I want to, I want to do this and here's my plan. Um, you know, what do you, what do you think about it? It's nice to have that second set of eyes and sometimes a third set of eyes on a, on a problem to get a good legal outcome. When you're on your own, you don't really have that. You can call friends on the phone, but, you know, lawyers are busy. It's tough to pick up the phone and call someone and have them right there. It's just, it's just a little rougher to run things on your own. But I do know plenty of solo practitioners who would have it no other way. They, they tend to settle into a specialties. Actually, we... We all tend to settle into specialties, or not necessarily one, but two or three, but they'll settle into specialties so that the need for outside assistance is reduced. But then again, they're in charge of, you know, their own rainmaking, their own bill paying. You had mentioned that when you were in law school, real estate wasn't something you were at all passionate about, but now it really comprises more of the focus of your practice? Uh, when I was in law school, uh, real estate was, was probably my least interesting uh, subject. Um, I, I had very little interest in it. Um, yet, when I got out into uh, the working world and was exposed to uh, some some tran real estate transactions and some litigation. It, it just clicked. I found it interesting. I enjoyed it. So I so I pursued it. But you know, had you asked me in law school, <laughs> you would never heard real estate come out of my mouth. So it was it was being out and being exposed to it uh, that got me that got me into it. Can you just give us sort of a generalized top-level review of what your work entails before we get into the nitty-gritty? I will represent either buyers or sellers of uh, residential real estate, commercial real estate, which usually require custom contracts. We've got a client who is preparing to do a very, very large uh, development 
uh, in the area and we'll be handling several different real estate issues that are going to come up because it's going to be a mixed use property so we'll be expected to be able to address those um, litigation wise a lot of times we have a lot of clear up title on property fights over title of property use of property i've been i've i've done this for 10 years my property now they tell me it's illegal uh, it, it, most of my litigation has come from ownership um, arguments either arising out of the past or or present uh, this was promised to me and and uh, i think this is a false deed and i've, I've seen false deeds and it's um you know straightening out things like that how would you characterize the types of clients that you have for the most part are they are they big corporations mid-sized businesses individuals we tend to represent a lot of uh big corporations and, and mid-sized corporations that's kind of um the clients that we like to have one of them has uh, shopping centers and, and rental places uh, all over Florida. You know, that's, that'd be our, our ideal client. But we've also had a grandmother come in who says, um, I let this man I felt sorry for move into my spare bedroom. Now he won't leave. So, you know, well, <laughs> I'll get him out. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Um, we have some of those too so it's 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 really a variety but we do tend to focus on bigger businesses it's nice to develop a relationship with a business that let's say rents property and they have property all over what's nice is you can develop a relationship with one person that may be in charge of that yet they'll have uh Re recurring problems and not just a one-time customer you may solve a problem for them today and two months from now they, they'll call you back and say hey Dan now I've got a problem over this other location and here's what's going on and, and what's nice is we already know how each other works and it makes the relationship a, a, a bit better it, so it's nice to establish those relationships with businesses and, and have central key figures you get to learn what's expected of you. You learn how they like things, how best to serve them, who's in charge, you know, who really makes decisions. So that's that's one of the reasons we try to focus on the companies that makes that makes operation a little bit easier than having having a fresh face for every new case. But like I said, we do those too. Now you had uh, alluded to in your anecdote about the grandma with the tenant issue um, eviction work that tends to be counter cyclical and we know that the market for that was on fire in 2008 and 2009. How would you characterize the uh, eviction real estate type practice right now? Boy you've um, <laughs> you just lit a, lit a match there on, 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 a, on a topic. Um, I did, uh, at, at one point in my career, focus primarily on doing eviction work. And in a way, it followed that, that model, business model that I just mentioned about uh, a company with several different uh, pieces of property. Um, most modern apartment communities 
Um, if you if you get to the ownership, you will find that they just don't own this one. They have six or seven other ones in the state of Florida. Um, you know, three in Georgia and and, and on and on. They they they've got them. If you could do a good job for them at this one location, you could pick up their entire Florida portfolio and uh, it becomes a, a, an ongoing stream of business, which is, which is nice. Back, back in 08 and 09, times were different and uh, eviction work was, was good. And, and by the way, there, there still, there still are in Florida um, some firms that just do evictions and, um, and, and, and that's fine. And they've, 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 they're tuned to it. They do it efficiently. They do it well, but they won't take much outside of that because you'll mess up their efficiency. They're, they're set up to do it this way. I'm not going to drop some numbers on you, but you'd be surprised at how many evictions, uh, a firm can do in a one thirty day period. You did mention the efficiencies. If you have a firm that that is set up to take to uh, take advantage of, say, efficiencies of scale, so can you sort of can we get a micro view of that? Like, if you're handling one eviction, what are the steps to that? What does that look like? And we can use eviction, and 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 you're right. It doesn't necessarily have to be evictions. There are there are programs and models for other areas too, such as like uh, divorce probate, asset protection. Uh, there are different companies that offer programs that help you make these things go smoother and quicker. The gentleman I worked with uh, had basically a proprietary computer system which would create all the documents. And of course, in a, in, in a standard eviction, it's usually because someone can't pay their rent. And if they can't pay their rent, they're usually not going to fight the eviction. Uh, so there'll be a petition filed for eviction in the local court. And then a, a, a summons will come out to be served on the defendant. Now, two upper hands we have in that part is uh, a summons in Florida is usually 20 days to answer. In an eviction, you only have five days to answer. Also, in uh, a lot of cases in Florida, to get it moving, you have to have personal service. You've got to find the the defendant and hand him or her the paper. It can be tough sometimes if someone wants to elude uh, being served. Not in the eviction world. If you're not home on the first attempt, the process server has to wait six at least six hours and go back and try a second attempt. And if there's no answer, the summons and complaint gets taped to your door. And that's that's service by posting. That's that's valid. These computer systems track when the service was done, and then every day would would pop out a list of who we on the sixth day of, and there was a person assigned to check the court files for for whoever's on that list to see if they filed an answer, and they're required to deposit the overdue rent, and if they didn't do one or the other or both. Uh, you pressed a certain button and the system would kick out a motion for default for either not answering or failing to deposit rent or both. But when I say kick it out, it would go into an electronic queue. In fact, we, we haven't even touched paper yet. The only paper that has happened so far is the summons going on the door of the tenant. 
the complaint has been electronically created and filed and, and, and sent back to you. And then we forward that to the process server to serve. And he, he or she prints out a copy to put on the person's door. From there on out, it's still, it stays in electronic form. Your motions for default, created electronically, transmitted to the court electronically, uh, judges are signing electronically. We then, we then submit a writ of possession to the clerk who is directed to execute the writ of possession. That gets sent back to us electronically. And then it goes to the sheriff's office. Now, once again, it becomes paper at that point, too, because the sheriff who finalizes the eviction has to have that uh, writ of possession in hand. But um, the system that was set up handled so much of that, again, by it just telling you who to track and, and, and press the right button on the right day, and it would, it would create the pleadings for you, and you just make sure they got to the right place. So it became very easy to handle a great volume of evictions. And like I said, you'd, you'd be surprised at how many you could do in, in one month, and it can be a lot, but you do have to be set up for scale to do that, and, and, and not many people do that. Support comes from Vermont Law and Graduate School. Vermont Law and Graduate School empowers students to dream big. It welcomes and shares passions for social justice, the environment, criminal justice reform, and so much more. At BLGS, realism and idealism collide. Together, students and faculty positively transform the world around them. From an accelerated two-year JD to an online hybrid JD, BLGS offers innovative programs where you can learn at your own pace. To learn more, please visit vermontlaw.edu. Support also comes from Albany Law School. Albany Law School is committed to increasing access to the legal profession. Albany Law's online FlexJD delivers all the benefits you'd expect from an institution that's been educating future lawyers and leaders since 1851. With one in-person session per year, you'll complete most of your work online, giving you the flexibility you need to earn your law degree when and where it works for you. To find out how you can begin your journey to earning a JD, visit albanylaw.edu today. Support also comes from Baylor Law School, the smallest and oldest law school in Texas. Baylor Law has three entering classes, 15 tracks of study, strong bar passage and employment rates, robust scholarship offerings, numerous clinics and joint degree programs, and a focus on preparing excellent and ethical lawyers. Visit the Baylor Law website to learn more and to apply for free to the spring, summer, and or fall entering classes. You had mentioned before that you do a lot of real estate closings. What does that look like in Florida in particular? Because I know that the law can can be distinct between different jurisdictions. It is. And, and I got to tell you, the version of closing has changed so much in the last 15 years. It used to be, you know, the buyer and the seller met at the closing agent at 2 p.m. at this address. The seller would sign the deed. The buyer would have the money ready, and, you know, it's a standard thing. Nowadays, it's almost not done that way. The title company will send the deed to the seller and say, you know, get this signed at your convenience, but it's got to be notarized, have it done the right way. You can come here if you want to. We'll help you with it. 
but you know you don't have to and uh and then i mail it back in uh the money comes in by wire transfers in fact because of the fraud almost all of the title insurance slash closing agents will not take your your bank check anymore you used to bring your bank check with you for your for your purchase now it's all by wire if there's going to be a wire and you speak on the phone to your title agent you do not take any information by fax or email or anything else and we're in the midst of florida going to um, online notarization that has been legalized and there are now online notaries up and running and uh, that just became law earlier this year and um, th there's not many of them yet but it is going to be the way things are notarized you don't have to leave your house to have it notarized so you can have a closing and nobody leave, you know, their house to do it. And, and, and that's the way it's headed. It sounds like there are a lot of opportunities for fraud in this process, especially as it moves more and more remote and online. What is your role as the attorney when it comes to the real estate closing process? It depends on whose side you are, you're, you're on. But, but essentially, at the end, the seller should walk away with the money uh, and the buyer should walk away with a valid deed. But to break it down a little bit more, the seller side is easier. The only way that you can really get in trouble is your deed that you have pre-signed to go to the buyer should never leave the closing agent's hand until the closing agent has hard money in hand. For the, uh, the seller, making sure that they have fully disclosed any material defects with the property that are not open and obvious. That is where I see a lot of litigation from newly purchased homes. We have a, uh, an old case that every, everyone knows in Florida, Johnson v. Davis, um, that says if you have residential property for sale, you must disclose any non-obvious defect that would affect the value of the house. And in fact, all the realtors now have a form that kind of asks the right questions for you to fill out yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, and, you know, please explain. So it helps you stay within the law. And I tell people, be honest with that, because if you're not, four months from now, you're going to get sued by the, you know, by the person that you sold the house to for, for lying about the, the, the leaky roof that you covered over with some, with some paint. It's going to come back and haunt you. Uh, be honest about your disclosure and get your cash and walk away. Um, so that's, that's the easy part on the, on the seller's side. Uh, on the buyer's side, I'm not an inspector. I don't go to the properties, but I do tell them, get a good home inspector. Number two, get a termite inspector. This is Florida. You've got to have a termite inspector in Florida. And, and yes, that's a separate inspection and make sure you get them in time during your due diligence period uh, because that, that's the time you can back out of your contract and not lose your deposit um, and, and, and make sure the house is in good condition. And you're going to get a title commitment that will show what, you know, liens, liens that are on the property, 
of whatever type, you know, it's common to find the mortgage of the seller. That's fine. What you don't want to find is a lien for unpaid water or, you know, unpaid taxes or things you don't expect. If you see those, and that's what I'm looking for, is unusual liens to make sure that the closing agent is aware of them, is aware of the payoff, and is going to pay them off and get a satisfaction at closing. Um, I have seen things overlooked uh, that should not have been overlooked. The closing agent should have paid something off, but it was oddly stated on the uh, title report, and I guess it didn't it didn't raise suspicion, but to me it was like, uh, I know what that is. It, you know, it has to be, there's, a, there's money behind that uh, that had to be taken care of after the fact. But So I'm, I'm looking out for the buyer and getting the property free and clear of any liens or encumbrances other than the ones they agree to, which is going to be like their own mortgage is going to become one. Uh, and, of course, the last thing is most banks, not all the time, will ask for a survey. I said, let me see your survey. I checked the property line for encroachments of other buildings from next-door neighbors and stuff. It's just pretty easy to run around the square. But also, who's got an easement? Uh, it's common for a power company or a cable company to have an easement along the back of your property because that's where the lines are run. But what do I do about that? I said, don't worry about it. You know, it's it's the power company. It's the cable company. They need, you know, they need to get back there if if it breaks in your yard. Really nothing you can do about it. Don't worry about it. Usually, you'll, you know, you're, you'll probably never ever see them back there. So I don't want any surprises with uh, what the buyer's getting. I usually check the closing statement to make sure that every lien that I've seen, there should be a deduction on there from the buyer's funds to pay it off. Uh, if, if there's something missing, if the guy didn't pay for the roof and he owes a roofer $12,000, I better see a $12,000 deduction to uh, Joe's roofing on that closing statement. If it's, if it's not there, we got a problem. Now, you have a lot of sophisticated clients, and it sounds like they are. And as we wrap up, could you give us um, some insight on what you think the the core value is that you bring to your clients? After doing these things for years and years and years, chances are if I'm in a lawsuit, I've done five of them before, and, and I, know, I know how they should go. And number two, and you'd be surprised how important this can be, is to get to know that the, the judges in the counties you practice, they tend to have different ways of doing things. You know, I had one one judge that if you had some paperwork that you wanted to use as an exhibit, you had better have one of those little dark yellow exhibit stamps in the corner and have it pre-marked before you walk into his courtroom. If you don't, um, you know, you, you can't just write quickly in the bottom, Exhibit A. That, that's, that's not good enough. Uh, it's it's got to be pre-done and ready to go. So that's something to know about that, that judge. You better do that or you get on his bad side. Some judges run a very, a very let's say, casual environment. 
which is kind of nice. And, and by casual, I mean the uh, hearing is more like a discussion as opposed to arguments and the judge making a declaration. Most hearings are more like a discussion. Tell me what the, what the concern is here. And, well, okay, judge, uh, A, B, and C, and, um, you know, I have some case law to back up A and B, and I think it's appropriate that, you know, th this, this happened. All right, thank you. And then I'll turn to opposing counsel and, okay, sir, how do you respond to that? Let's talk a little bit more about judge personalities. That can be good or bad for your client, right? So being in front of the judges, getting to know their styles, what they like, whether they're uh, very formal or informal, it is really a benefit. I can even go so far, and I, I'm not going to name names, but there is one particular judge that I almost could never lose in front of. And at that same particular courthouse, <laughs> on the same type of cases, there was one particular judge I could almost never win in front of. If we pulled the judge that I could almost never win in front of, I would have a discussion with, with our clients. And we have, you know, Judge A, and um, <laughs> let me tell you about him. And um, because of that, we should look for ways to try to avoid a final hearing. And, and work more towards settling the case because <laughs> um, there's a good chance that we won't win. Uh, and I can't, you know, I, I can't tell you why. <laughs> um, I'm always very cordial to judges. I'm, I'm easy to get along with with just about everybody. I'm, I, I, don't, I don't have a real aggressive attitude, so I, I don't step on toes very often. But if I have Judge B, which I can almost not lose in front of, our handling may be different or our offering of settlement may not be as generous. Uh, the, per the, the client might say, I, I really don't want to work with this person though. And of course, if I have an attorney uh, or Judge A, I say, look, I I'm telling you, you need, you need to think about it. That your, your end game is this. We may have to take a longer route to get there, but, but take the long route because it's this, this judge, it's, it's, it's not, you're not going to be happy. Where the other judge, they, you know, the person says, I don't want to work with them. I would say, well, okay, if you're sure of that, because chances are we're going to win anyway. So, you know, if you're, if you really don't want to, that's, that's fine. But it does impact the way that you advise your clients. They're as different as, as you and I. They're all following the same law. But um, you'd be surprised how different <laughs> a law can be interpreted from one judge to the next. It's, um, it's surprising. I Am The Law is a Law Hub production. Don't forget to subscribe and rate this show in your favorite podcast app. Thank you to our presenting sponsor, Blueprint LSAT Test Prep. Thank you also to our other sponsors, LSAT Lab, Seton Hall University School of Law, Vermont Law and Graduate School, and Baylor Law.